Hello and welcome to BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex Rue BTN. We're back with another two-part episode here on the Take 10 Podcast. Um, last week we had just a guest because our stat head, aka researcher, stats guru, Harold Shelton was on vacation, but he's back in the lab this week to talk Big Ten basketball. So we sat down with him during the second part of the show uh, for an in-depth breakdown of what's going on in Hoopsland. So get to that in uh, in a little bit after our interview with our special guest this week, and that is with co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League, Paul Rabel. And for any lacrosse fans out there, Paul is obviously a uh, household name in the sport. He's one of the all-time great players in the sport. And his uh, Premier Lacrosse League that he has marketed brilliantly is about to start its second season coming up this spring. So it's good timing because the Big Ten lacrosse season actually gets started next week. Uh, Next week has been named Big Ten Lacrosse Week by the conference. And uh, we're able to get Paul on one of the titans in the sport to discuss not only his league, but how uh, his alma mater, Johns Hopkins, has blended in and and, uh, elevated the level of Big Ten lacrosse. So really a cool and pretty unique discussion for this podcast. Don't have a whole lot of uh, lacrosse guests on. I think he's the first one. So we'll uh, definitely uh, get to that really shortly here. Just a quick reminder, if you haven't already, before we get to the interview, to uh, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, if you haven't already. And please leave a rating or review for the show if you like it. And you can also find the show on YouTube as well, where we uh, post every episode under the Big Ten Network channel. So with that out of the way, let's uh, toss it over to Paul Rabel. Again, founder, co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League, also a player in the Premier Lacrosse League, so he's got his uh, plate pretty full. He's not uh, doing podcast interviews, so we will uh, let him take the reins from here. It's BTN's interview with Paul Rabel, and it starts right now. Very pleased to be joined by a household name in lacrosse. It's Paul Rabel. He played collegially at Johns Hopkins and... Now a co-founder and player in the Premier Lacrosse League, Paul. Thanks for coming on. How's it going? Thanks for having me. It's it's going well. And and when I was playing at Hopkins, it was so long ago. We weren't even a part of the Big Ten Network, so I uh, I missed that opportunity. Graduated in 2008, but have seen uh, how quickly the um, the conference has become the best in college lacrosse. Yeah, I was going to say, it was kind of weird at first, uh, you know, as an alum that, that Hopkins is in the Big Ten, uh, since it was, you know, a few years after you uh, you left Hopkins. Yeah, and, and I will uh, use this moment to promote Hopkins as the, the, the best and most historically winning university in college lacrosse, dating all the way back pre-NCAA era. And so we had always viewed ourselves, and, and that's backed by a number of championships, like 44 championships and number of first-team All-Americans, et cetera. And uh, we had always viewed ourselves as the Notre Dame of Notre Dame football of lacrosse and uh, had, had kind of leaned into that independence um, component and had played all of the major teams across the biggest conferences in lacrosse. So it was unique at first, but then if you 
peel back the layers of the onion, you look at the opportunity uh, in aligning with a mainstream conference like the Big Ten, uh, the benefits both economically from a distribution standpoint, from a resources capacity, it, it then made a ton of sense. So uh, after deliberating for a while, and, and I was more on the on the outside of, of the internal committee, committee, but I've been asked for some opinions, uh, I was all for it. Yeah, some Maryland Terrapin fans may have just uh, left the chat, but uh, I got to Yeah, well, those Maryland Terrapins, when I was in school, too, were also playing for the ACC. So if you're still on, (laughs) hang on for a little bit longer, all right, because we're all a part of the the migration to the Big Ten. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I got to say, it's kind of weird as one of the guys who shares a lot of the social content when lacrosse season comes around to kind of pull the trigger and tweet from Big Ten Network um, tagging, you know, JHU men's lacrosse just because I feel like that audience hasn't been quite built up yet so that's what we're trying to do here you know we're trying to bridge that gap a little Paul so appreciate you coming on yeah of course and yeah. for all the the listeners that you have across other sports and, and more of the traditionalists to the Big Ten I would say that the invitation and the acceptance of Johns Hopkins into this conference was one that uh, we're not only really excited about but also I think bringing a lot of uh, you know, kind of empirical evidence and, and accolades and championships to the Big Ten on the lacrosse side and know that the network, um, you know, regularly distributes the games once in season and uh, and hopefully we, we carry our weight amongst the other members. For sure, and I'll talk a little bit more about Big Ten lacrosse uh, towards the end, but I did want to touch on your efforts with the Premier Lacrosse League because, you know, you've been kind of referred to as the Jackie Moon of the PLL, you know, you're both a player and owner. You got that uh, that dual responsibility going on. So just yeah. yeah, for those who don't know much about lacrosse, can you give us kind of a general overview of what the PLL is, how many teams are involved, and, and how to watch it? Yeah, so I appreciate that. So slightly different than semi-pro, I, I do like to uh, soften maybe the, 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 the edges of, of potentially – uh, a listener or sports fan hearing that an athlete started a league that he or she's playing in. So it has happened before in the action sports side of things. And I think Yammer Yager is, is an owner and player in an overseas uh, hockey league. But yeah, it's definitely rare. I would say that over the last 20 years, at least, there had been a, a professional lacrosse league called Major League Lacrosse that uh, saw the opportunity in the late 90s in, in the relative boom of lacrosse across participation to college un- and, and universities propping up teams at the Division One, Two, II, and Three level. Um, yet, uh, fast forward another 10 years in the modern era of social and digital, I think the, the, the former league really missed on the opportunity of marketing itself, finding major distribution with network partners and OTTs, um, and then elevating the players, as we've seen a lot of non-core sports leagues do, from the UFC to World Surf League to a number of action sports leagues that has propped up. So we looked at that opportunity, originally wanted to work with MLL, given you know kind of the, the cohort of players that were interested in moving with me, and, uh, and just met with some resistance. So what we decided to do was launch a league from scratch and really embracing this modern era of not only what I had mentioned previously, but the new stadiums that have propped up from the latest MLS ownership group's investment there. And uh, so we built a unique model. We launched the PLL in October of 2018. We played our first season 
this past summer we we cut a deal with nbc so they're our network partner they broadcast our games across nbc sportsnet and uh and nbc main network so it was the first time lacrosse had been on broadcast television if you take even college lacrosse the final four and championship are on espn2 so you look at overall ratings in, in pro sports, the NFL has seen an increase by 5% this season. The NBA even saw a decrease despite the, the NBA's accelerated growth. And the net of it is uh, trying to reach the masses is coming down to your ability to book broadcast programming windows. And so we were able to do that in year one. And, uh, and we just announced, uh, in addition to our six uh, for, you know, kind of original teams. We were going to expand this year, so we announced that seventh team to start the year in 2020. And among a number of other things, most notably announcing the markets that we're going to be playing in, we'll have 15 game weekends um, and, uh, and and in 15 different markets. So we're excited about year two. But it's been uh, a whirlwind, uh, a ton of stuff to roll out when you launch a league from scratch. Um, and if you have other other thoughts or questions you want to take this, otherwise I'll hog the entire bo- podcast talking about uh, everything that we're doing. No, I love when the guests get on a roll, and, and uh, you, you touched on it, but you guys have done a really good job promoting the league, and I think a lot of it has to do with kind of your willingness to, to go some non-traditional routes on the marketing side. Um, you know, I heard about PLL and, uh, you know, got to know your personality, personality a little bit because you were on part of my take podcast uh and went as far as to even you know let the host kind of name one of your teams you, you touched on the new yeah. team the water dogs um water dogs lc so was there kind of a collective decision from uh the pll brain trust or or anyone behind the scenes to try and tap and embed yourself within you know those audiences or it just kind of happened naturally because of the, the connections you have uh yeah i, I think it's 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 a combination of both, but you have to have that willingness and that strategic effort to uh, touch and uh, and access new audiences. And so for us in particular, we've seen new mediums and social media in particular. The new me- other new medium that, that's really emerged is podcasting, as you had mentioned. And the part of my take, guys, Big Cat PFT, Erica Nardini is the CEO of Barstool. She's an advisor in the business, is, uh, is that this is – there's never been a stickier time or more content, more availability to access new sports leagues or aspire to be a, a, an athlete that doesn't play in the NBA, NFL, MLB, NHL than, than now. Um, and that's because of, the, of that change in medium and direct to consumer. So when we launched this league, uh, put it this way, we wouldn't have been able to raise the capital that we did from the investors that we have. Uh, 10 years ago, certainly not 20 years ago in the linear age of pro and college sports where the barrier to enter was so high because you'd have to have a network deal. Uh, there were only four to five major networks. Um, and there was there was a barrier to enter because they had limited programming windows on a 24-hour basis, 365. Um, and then you'd have to build a stadium. You'd go the route of traditional team ownerships in specific markets. So even if you were to go that route, it'd be a five to 10 year runway to launch. Uh, in today's world, because of social media, because of unlimited inventory, the way that national television has evolved, become international, and now we can subscribe to OTTs, whether it's BTN or whether it's you know Flow Sports or DAZN, we can watch Cristiano Ronaldo play live overseas. We can watch... LeBron James play on the West Coast if we live on the East Coast, 
um, that used to never exist. So now all of a sudden programming windows are endless and that provides opportunities for new entrants in the market. So we were, uh, we're very strategic. We want to be uh, non-traditional. We want to you know, bring everyone behind the curtain and what it's like. We call it like the Shark Tank era of people wanting to learn and understand how the business is operating how the front office is thinking, um, not just around trades, not just around wins and losses and rationale around gaming or betting. Like they want to actually figure out how this business is being built. And the more you bring them to that intimate uh, level, the more likely they will become loyal fans and watch the product and attend games and so on. So that was always our vision. Um, and then, the, you know, the differentiator is because we're true single entity, we don't have a players association. We don't have 32 team owners that we have to lobby to make a vote go through. We can make decisions pretty quickly, and, and we're benefiting from that. Sure, and I'm curious, what are some of the other ways besides you know the, the podcast announcement and embedding with some of the, the main players um, in sports media today? What are some other ways you've had to get creative? I noticed that you are not tying your your uh, teams to certain cities, and you're, you're yeah. doing schedule announcements kind of week by week. So what are some other ways you guys have had to uh, branch out? Yeah, so with every announcement, we're always thinking about reach and how do we you know, get people's eyebrows to raise and, and be interested around, you know, frankly, an annual announcement routine that every league goes through, whether it's your, your season schedule, turning on tickets, expansion team, the expansion draft, all that type of stuff. We're constantly trying to think differently and uh and so, and so that is that that's like step one then step two is tapping into uh existing mediums that have scale and whether that is when we announced the league back in october we did live television with bloomberg and cnbc and nbc and then we did player blogs for player for players tribune we did a video with uninterrupted uh we had a long form article with the ringer uh we did print with sports illustrated so we're constantly tapping into um you know, major in sports endemics and then not endemics, whether it's business and the New York Times and Washington Post or uh, or sports business and Bloomberg and CNBC, as I mentioned. So uh, I think when you when you look at pro sports, it's about the competition on field, which we have the best players in the world. And we say that the competition takes care of itself. That's the easy part. Those guys go out and play and they know how to play. And then the second part is if you've got one, you've got to distribute it. So there's nothing worse in any business, sports or, or unrelated, to where you have a really great product that no one sees. So distribution was critical, and, and that's why we got our NBC deal, and that's why we really lean into social media and how we're making these announcements and interacting with our players and actually funneling some releases and announcements through our players' accounts. Um, and then and then the last part that I'll say is, is to your reference around not attaching our teams to cities is we took a broader look at team sports leagues versus individual sports leagues. And if you look at NASCAR, PGA Tour, UFC, the advantage that they have is they drop into a, into a market with the best players in the world over the course of a weekend. They provide uh, a wraparound entertainment to the fans. It's, it's a consistent experience and, and first-class experience for the players and the coaches. And then you're able to really bring your network in and innovate uh, kind of all hands on deck because you're not having your network partner go to 12 different cities on a Saturday night. They're focused on that city and that weekend. So um, we felt like that tour-based model of individual sports 
uh, has evolved and actually positioned itself with new media and technology to be advantageous. So we wanted to lean into that. And then secondarily, if you're in a nascent stage sports league, and in our case in year one, we had six teams, if we tied our six teams to six markets, we'd have actually been a really exclusive league, right? Only those six markets could feel ownership in the pro sports league that we created. And while lacrosse has become national and participatory growth has has seen a, a major spike out west, we wanted to be able to turn on a pro league that was national overnight. So by not tying to geos, lacrosse fans all over the country, and we've seen this now backed by data internationally, are picking their favorite team based on the players or the team culture or even the coaches, and they don't have to worry about not living in New York or Boston or L.A., and, uh, and so that's how we launched. That doesn't mean we'll always be this way, uh, but we certainly saw um, a fast ramp up based on that bet. Yeah, definitely. And kind of with the NBC tie-in, what they've done a great job of doing in the U.S. is kind of capturing fan bases uh, when it comes to people who don't really you know, necessarily care about Manchester, England. But I've seen a willingness among you know, my peers to attach themselves to a Premier League soccer team regardless of geographic affiliation. So, like you said, that, yeah. it's, it's an awesome strategy. And um, I, I think there's more of a willingness than people here realize to, to kind of latch on to teams like that. Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's a couple of trends that you look at, and we, we pull them from Nielsen and Google. And if you look at the millennial sports fan or the Gen Z sports fan, they're actually being coined the fluid fan right now uh, for a couple of reasons. One, they grew up on social media, so they're native to social um, and the shift in attention to sports and the conversation around sports being primarily around athletes. Uh, if you look at the modern NBA era in free agency, no longer do we have the Michael Jordans or Magic Johnsons or Larry Birds that are drafted to a team and stay there. Um, those, those athletes are moving around sometimes year to year, and those athletes also build a favorable relationship to fans. Um, and what Facebook and Google say is on a four times greater basis than fans do with their teams. You match that with what we've seen from millennials and, you know, ostensibly will be the case for Gen Zs, but different than our parents and our parents' parents or Gen Xers, baby boomers, like we grow up in a market and then we have a propensity to move or take new jobs and we're more geographically agnostic, almost like the free agency market in the NBA. So between those two, uh, and then new media's fans are, are are less sticky to their favorite team per market than they were in the past. Um, so that's that's important to reference. And then you had also called on, look, if you can create an entertaining property and you have the best in class players, whether it's the EPL or the PLL, and you can distribute that, fans are going to watch in the U.S. Frankly, it's the number one watched soccer program in the U.S. And number two is actually La Liga. And then three is Bundesliga. And then four is MLS in North America alone uh, because people want to watch the best players in the world. And then they figure out who their favorite club is, whether it's Chelsea or Man United or City, based on their favorite players. So that type of shift in how sports are being consumed is happening right now and and we're jumping on that um all that said i'm not suggesting that fandom to sports based on where you grew up or geography doesn't matter anymore i mean look at the nfl look at the nba look at the nhl playoffs it certainly matters and it's really important but it's just no longer the end-all be-all like it used to be if you were to start a league in the 80s or 90s so you've got all this stuff on your plate. You know, you're trying to get a league off the ground. 
How much are you still focusing on the professional athlete side of things, staying in shape and being, you know, ready to play? Because on top of all that, you got games to play. Yeah. So I, I you know, look, I, this is how I kind of view it is, um, you know, I'm, I'm, um, you know, a, a single entrepreneur who's, who's heavily focused on uh, my, you know, kind of a dual full-time role as a, as an athlete and as the co-founder of this business. So I'm basically married to my training. Um, it's a part of my day, as is a relationship would be to any co-founder of a business, and I carve out the required time to continue to grow as an athlete, and my skill as a player, and then you know my business hours during the day are dedicated to the PLL. So, uh, what does that cut out? My social life uh, as a single kind of you know mid thirties executive, sure. Uh, that's not going to be the case forever, but you know, it's time management and then figuring out what's most important for me in the near term. The good news is we start, we stood up a league and we're successful in doing that in year one. We've operationalized the business. We've brought in a bunch of revenue and now we're like really building out the pipes moving forward to create something that's perennial. Um, and, uh, and that's basically how I ration it. All right, I want to talk a little bit of uh, Big Ten. Does that sound too robotic to you? No, no, no. You, you blend the you blend the uh, you know Silicon Valley tech guy with the athlete very well. Uh, the, the lines the lines blur perfectly. Um, all right, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Big Ten college lacrosse before we wrap up, Paul. You've been very generous with your time. Um, it's good timing because Big Ten lacrosse week actually starts next week. So yeah. now that the Big Ten, you know, we talked about has Maryland, has Hopkins. Ohio State's been pretty good. How is it viewed in the lacrosse universe, and how does it kind of stack up with some of the other powerhouse leagues and in, in schools? Well, in the lacrosse universe, it was the fastest rise to the top. And, and granted, I'm partial given my relationship with Johns Hopkins and growing up in the state of Maryland. But if you, if you just look at win losses, if you look at tournament appearances and success up to this point, all Americans, it was previously. The ACC, I think the ACC has quickly, um, you know, been overcome by the Big Ten, and you know Maryland played a significant role in that. Obviously, Johns Hopkins and the history of Johns Hopkins, but what we've seen with Penn State, even over the last couple of years, um, you know, they were the favorite to win last year, and I think are the favorite this year to win the NCAA championship. Is and you mentioned Ohio State, is, is the conference is actually pretty deep, too. So um, I, I think it's it's some of the most exciting ball. Every team has a different style. So I think different than, call it Big Ten basketball versus ACC basketball, there's two different styles that you can really peg. Um, in lacrosse, we have a high-paced, high-scoring team in Penn State as part of the Big Ten, and then also a more methodical, uh, you know, stingent defense, kind of more slow-paced uh, and tactical offense in Maryland. Both of those teams uh, make the Final Four seemingly every year, so you get a good mix of, of fluidity. So if you're new to lacrosse and you're watching it, um, I would check out, you know, every team has a different style, and, and that's, I think you'll, you'll find your, your fan favorite, so to speak, um, within the Big Ten. Well, you compared it to basketball briefly there, and I assume you've been following, at least from afar, what Pat Spencer's doing for Northwestern. Yeah. It's wild. I mean, the fact that he's able to be a dominant player in lacrosse and come in and more than hold his own in a Big Ten, uh, another Big Ten sport is crazy. So, uh, what do you think that says, I guess, about the um, dual sport nature, maybe, of, of some lacrosse players? Because, you know, you see guys like Chris Hogan making the NFL, and it's kind of a trend that I at least have noticed from afar. 
Yeah, and, and there's actually been a longer list of, of athletes who have had success in multiple sports at the college level and professional level. I mean, Will Yateman is another one who I played um, – you know, kind of with and against at the college level. He was at Maryland and Notre Dame playing uh, lacrosse only at Maryland and lacrosse and football at Notre Dame. Then he played for the Pats under Bill Belichick. Uh, you mentioned Chris Hogan doing the same. Um, I believe the quarterback for Wisconsin was a, was a top uh, college lacrosse recruit, and he decided to shift last minute over and play college football. Uh, and then we have Pat Spencer, to your point, exhausted four years of eligibility lacrosse, Touraton winner, so our, our Heisman essentially, and uh, and then now is is more than holding his own. I think he's one of the more dominant players in Big Ten basketball right now. Almost had a double double uh, in their attempt to upset Maryland last week. So uh, I was I was surprised by it. I mean, we drafted him. Um, you know, he's so he's taken and his rights are with Archers Lacrosse Club in the PLL. Uh, tremendous player. I knew he was a great basketball player, but. I think it speaks to what you had referenced and, and what I always talk about. So there's a bunch of crossover skills in lacrosse to basketball and football. Uh, but, but I think what goes often under-discussed in pro sports, or call it in Pat's case, a fifth year of eligibility, is that you know pro sports are, about, are, are, are really a, a combination of an athlete's commitment to improving, um, and that sounds really fundamental, but a lot of people lose sight of what to do once you get drafted to pro sports, and they put most of, if not all, their emphasis on the road to getting drafted. But you you actually enter into a place where there's a ton of independence, and there's no more hand-holding like there is in college and high school sports and even youth sports. So you see a lot of athletes emerge from lower-profile universities in all of the major sports leagues because they take it upon themselves to excel. The other thing is college graduates are 21 and 22 years old. Um, your, your accelerated moments of growth are into your mid and late twenties. So, you know, peak performing years for a long time have, have been considered 28 to 32, uh, because 28, you're still at the height of your athleticism and you're starting to pick up the nuance of psychology and sport and experience and reps. So Pat Spencer right now, you know, is is a fifth year player taking on, um, you know, a sport that he loved was his first love different than lacrosse. And I think he's got a really strong perspective that a lot of younger younger undergrads don't have. So I'm excited to see him continue to play this season. We'll see uh, what happens at the next level, whether he's going to get a look from the NBA or the G League or ideally come back to the PLL. Yeah, it's been fun to watch and it'll be fun to follow, like you said. Uh, Last question paul i wanted to give you an opportunity um to shout out some of maybe the dates coming up on the schedule um as you guys look to promote the season coming up what's coming uh or what lies ahead for the pll what should we be looking out for yeah so one of the things that we had talked about uh early and often was our social media so you can follow us on instagram at pll or our twitter at premier lacrosse we push out you know the lion's share if not everything through our, our social our website is premierlacrosseleague.com um we announced our expansion team we have our expansion draft coming up at nbc studios uh second week of february uh and then we'll have our college draft in april at nbc sports uh with a really talented senior class uh led by a lot of big 10 players so that's going to be exciting to see our training camp 
is also in May, and then our first game weekends at Gillette Stadium on May 29th and 30th. So it's a Friday night game, two Saturday night games. And so, uh, you know, what, what's advantageous again about the tour based model that we've adopted is that every game weekend, fans get access to three games in that stadium over two days. Uh, so what we're going to continue to make announcements um, over the next four to five weeks, and we'll have our 15 week schedule ironed out thus far. We made Gillette, as I had mentioned, um, and then we have Atlanta the following week, and we just announced Long Island this week. So more to come, um, but thanks for having me on, and, and I think the sport is, uh, is, is really accelerating right now. Awesome, yeah, and, and Big Ten Lacrosse feeds nicely into the PLL just with how the schedule shakes out. So be sure to follow uh, Big Ten, follow Premier Lacrosse League, and follow Paul Rabel because he's doing big things. Paul, thanks again, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, thanks once again to Paul for joining me. Really impressive dude. Um, awesome to get to know him a little bit and hear his story and, and his, uh, his ventures and, and uh, really kind of learn a little bit more about a sport that is becoming much more competitive or already is very competitive, as Paul said, in the Big Ten, uh, making the Big Ten more competitive nationally, uh, as Paul alluded to with, with some of our elite teams that we now have in the Big Ten Conference. So exciting stuff there. And uh, definitely follow his uh, his progression through the Premier Lacrosse League as he uh, continues to build that. All right. We will now toss it over to some basketball talk with our BTN researcher, Harold Shelton. Harold was on vacation last week, so he's back. Has some catching up to do, which we do in the next 15, 20 minutes or so. And we will not waste any more time and get right to him. It's the... Take 10 podcast interview with Harold Shelton starts right now. All right. I'm very pleased to be joined by Harold Shelton. He's back from Mexico, back from vacation. Harold, I got you a gift while you were back. What do you think here, man? Yeah, this is awesome. I'm definitely uh, enjoying the new digs. You know, got some new mics and a rug and nice table. Got some shelves. It's it's coming along quite nicely. Yeah. So we're talking about our, our podcast studio, digital studio setup. We got... Uh, you know, some furniture, like H said, we finally got some new and improved microphones. So, you know, it feels kind of like a, a little fan cave, a little, uh, you know, a little professional recording studio. And, um, you know, it's a good place to talk sports. So, uh, glad we're, we're up to speed now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, we obviously made do before, but, you know, having these upgrades is definitely a good thing. We must be doing something right if they're willing to, to set this up for exactly. us. So let's get into it. Let's talk, uh, Big Ten hoops. Let's catch up since you've been gone. There's been some movement, especially near the top of the conference, uh, especially with a couple of teams that have been near the opposite end of the conference the last few years, and and uh, with the Rutgers especially, mostly since they've entered the league. So, back from uh, the beach, what are your thoughts on the movements toward top of the league that Illinois and Rutgers have made um, the past couple of weeks? Uh, the Illinois one I sh- isn't too unexpected. I know they were one of the teams preseason where they were picked kind of all over the map. I know some people had them as high as second. Some others had them uh, you know, as low as eighth or ninth. But a lot of people thought they had the talent uh, to kind of do this. Now, granted, you know, the way that they played a year ago is not at all how they play now, especially defensively. You know, with having Kofi on the floor, they can't do the, you know, the 40 minutes of hell, full court press, trap everything. They've just become 
a much more solid defensive team, a better rim-protecting team. Uh, they don't foul nearly as much, and I think all of that has kind of gone into why Illinois has been so much better. Trent Frazier and Ayo DeSumo making shots late in, late in the game certainly helps as well. Uh, as for Rutgers, though, I mean, that's clearly a huge surprise. Um, you know, we saw them, you know, late November, early December. It lose a tough game to St. Bonaventure on a neutral court. Uh, lose at Pitt, who was just okay. And you're like, eh, same kind of thing. I know Michigan State wound up beating them in the first conference game of the season. I think it was bowl selection Sunday. Didn't look so great doing it. It was right after the Duke loss, and I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know. You know, maybe this Michigan State team isn't that good. And then you see what Rutgers has done since that point. And now you're like, whoa, they got a, a top 20 win in the net. And, uh, you know, the fact that Rutgers is playing so well, you know, defensively coming into the Iowa game, they were the second be- their second most efficient team since the start of conference play in the country, like behind Kansas. So that just goes to show you how well Rutgers was playing. Yeah, you touched on it there. I thought Rutgers was still a year away. I thought the NIT would be a good accomplishment this year for where they were at, um, you know, kind of in their build under Steve Peichel. But like you said, they just picked up their level of play in the last month or so. It's been really impressive to watch. Um, when Geo Baker went down, I, I was thinking, man, this is like really unfortunate timing because it looked like they were really starting to make a leap. And instead they, they used it almost – as fuel, it didn't really drop off at all. Um, and, and conversely, when he's come back, they haven't dropped off either. I know they lost to Iowa, but there's nothing to sh- uh, hang your head about out of that result. It was still a great game. So they've been able to withstand some fluctuations in the lineup. Ron Harper Jr. seems to be getting better and better. He had his career high against Iowa. Um, he looks like he's going to be a force for as long as he chooses to stay in college. And it, it just continues to be a great story. I know um, this is something we've seen – in football and basketball this year, but them entering the top 25 in basketball after a long drought, just like Indiana did in football after a you know multi-decade drought. So it's cool to see. I think I think it's um, it speaks to you know kind of how the Big Ten across the board has upgraded their coaching and facility budgets in the last five ten years since you know the network was around. I hate to pat ourselves on the back too much, but I, I think there's a connection there, and we're seeing teams that you know usually might not be. Um, regular players in the top 25 or in the Big Ten race start to enter into it. So that's been good. Um, I, I agree with what you said about Illinois, how you know people maybe didn't expect them to be a top two or three Big Ten team, but they were going to be in the mix. It's it's good um, you know, as an alum to see them finally figure it out because it was looking kind of dicey about a month ago after, after they had uh, lost to Missouri. But uh, they're figuring things out in a big way. And then you mentioned Iowa briefly. They've got scary potential to me because Luca Garza has elevated his play to a level I'm not sure we've seen. Um, I can't think of a comparison off the top of my head. You've got more of a of a reservoir to go off of. So what do you think about him and how he compares and stacks up in uh, recent Big Ten history? Yeah, so what, what he's doing is pretty rare. Obviously, uh, another big game last night, you know, with – Know, 28 points, 13 rebounds against Rutgers. And the fact that Iowa was able to win that game, despite the fact that he didn't even score in the final 11 minutes, just goes to show you how explosive Iowa can be. Uh, the fact that he's already had four 25 and 10 games, it's the second most, or tied for the second most of any Big Ten player uh, the last 10 years. Only uh, Biggie Swanigan had more in a single season. Uh, now he's averaging, <clears throat> sorry, he's averaging like 23 points and 10 rebounds on the year. 
you know, in terms of power conference players to do that since 92, 93, you're talking Big Dog. Mm-hmm. You're talking KD. Blake Griffin. Talking Beasley. You're talking Blake Griffin, Luke Heron, Goldie. Like, he's in elite company, you know, for 20-plus years, the fact that he's doing this. And he's doing it in a league that has a ton of really good big men. I mean, the fact that Luka Garza has shown the progression that he has is very impressive. Sure, and, and I was another team that I thought – was maybe a year away from getting back to the tournament um, when they lost Bohannon, when they had a couple early stumbles. Like, you know, DePaul came in and beat them on their home floor. Uh, McCaffrey was ruled out. And, and there's just been a lot of uncertainty with them. And, and Garza's more than made up for kind of all of that. It's been it's been incredible to see. Um, and, you know, when we talk about elite big men, Daniel Truer is another guy who's put up numbers that we haven't really seen consistently um, in the Big Ten. I mean, we, you know, you got guys like Kaminsky that, that put up ridiculous numbers as big men and, and um, guys like him. You know, you mentioned outside the conference with Herringody and guys like that, but what Otura was doing is just as impressive. And if he wasn't doing it in the same year as Luca Garza, he'd be talked about as, as the uh, Big Ten player of the year and still maybe could grab that uh, title. So, you know, it could be recency bias, but I don't remember multiple guys ever doing this kind of at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it, this is, again, this is really rare. The fact that Luca you know, is in rarefied air by himself. Now you add another guy who's averaging 20 and 10. I mean, Oturu and Garza in terms of power conference players, they're accounting, well, I think Garza's accounting for 29% of the team's points. Oturu's accounting for 28 of Minnesota's point, 28% of Minnesota's points. Only Marcus Howard has a higher percentage of scoring the team's points amongst power conference players. The fact that he's also a 20 and 10 guy. I mean, the fact that you have two of them going at the same time is pretty crazy. Uh, I know going into the games, the Wednesday night games, you know, Garza was sixth in the country in scoring. Otura was sixth in the country in rebounding. The fact that you're just seeing this at the same time is really rare. I mean, the fact that Otura, I saw on a, uh, a mock draft the other day, he was eighth. Right. He was eighth overall. And then people saw – him be good last year and I think people thought he would take a jump but I don't think anybody saw him as a potential top 10 pick as a sophomore it just kind of goes to show how good he's really been and you're talking about you know Chris Humphreys Big Dog Eschmeyer Garza Noturu guys to average 20 and 10 in the Big 10 in the last 25 plus years yeah super impressive um so you know I think Iowa Illinois Rutgers Michigan State have earned exactly where they are right now, right now in that top kind of four. Um, some teams have fluctuated outside of that. Maryland's another team that has uh, been interesting. They finally got a road win, albeit at Northwestern. And another team with a ton of talent that, you know, I've always kind of rooted for to finally break through uh, because it seems like they always are so close and we talk about them a lot. It's Penn State. They were looking a little shaky a few weeks ago, the last couple of weeks, but they stabilized taking advantage of a couple teams that actually have, have started to slide in Ohio State and Michigan. So back-to-back wins for Penn State. I think they're on a trajectory where they're going to break through this year, make the tournament. Um, any trends that stand out to you when looking at the Nittany Lions? Do you, you, know, do you think that Stevens and um, his whole cast are playing at a high enough level to, to carry them there? Well, for one, Lamar Stevens is a dude. Right. I mean, just period. And he's been a dude for a while. Another guy getting kind of overshadowed by this greatness that we're seeing in the exactly. teams. I mean, if you take any one of these players that we've talked about, whether it's Oturu, Garza, and Stevens, and just split them up into different years, 
they'd be the absolute favorite for Big Ten Player of the Year. But they're all doing it in the same year. And Stevens has been doing this for a while. It's just that, you know, he's had Tony Carr on the team or, he, you know, he's had, you know, other players who have kind of taken the spotlight. But now it's his team. And the supporting cast is certainly certainly starting to help. I mean, Mike Watkins is a known commodity. But now you got the Joneses. And we saw what they did against Michigan. You know, it was Myron Jones who had a huge first half. And Curtis Jones had, you know, 18 points in the second half on the road to, to win in Ann Arbor. So if they're getting performances like that, I think that they'll wind up making the tournament. What's killed them in the past is that they've lost non-conference games against teams that aren't so good, and that's come back to bite them, and they didn't have that. The only questionable loss non-conference was the 20-point lead that they blew against Ole Miss on a neutral court, but that's not a resume killer. And In fact, they have five quad one wins uh, in the net, and only uh, Iowa, Seton Hall, and Kansas have more nationally so it just goes to show you how good of a position Penn State is yeah you brought up the almighty net it's that time of year where you're starting to see the graphics now across all networks and, and breaking down who's got the most quad one wins in the net you know what your quad one two three four record is um the rankings came out a couple weeks ago the original ones I believe but I saw uh, a few in the past week or so that you know put 11 or 12 big 10 teams in the top 40 of the net and had three Big Ten teams among the top five or six schools that had the most quad one wins. So, you know, for those who are who are new or just kind of tuning in or not sure what the net is, saw some confusion yesterday when we posted a graphic about it among the social media masses. Let's just do a quick uh, refresher course, Net 101, and explain how it's kind of weighted, you know, home versus road and why it's so important and why the committee uses it. Uh, so the net uh, pretty much just took over for the RPI uh, as the NCAA's main evaluation metric. Um, it It's weighted to the point now where road wins mean more. RPI was just kind of all wins were the same <clears throat> for the most part. Uh, so now you break it down by – the quad system. So, for instance, a quad one win, if you beat a team in the top 30 at home, that counts as a quad one win. If you beat a team in the top 50 on a neutral court, it counts as a quad one. If you beat a top 75 team on the road, it counts as a quad one. Before with the RPI, everything was just top 50. Nothing, no differential at all. But obviously it's much harder to win on the road, as we've seen with the Big Ten this season. Right. And so those road wins mean much more, and the NCAA committee is taking uh, taking a better look at that. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago I asked you, when looking at the Big Ten standings, we looked at kind of the jumbled mess in the middle, and, and that's going to kind of stay that way the whole year with just how deep the conference is. But I, I asked you to pick out a team or two from the masses that would rise up maybe in, in – emerge and uh maybe threaten for the big 10 title looks like right now it's been as we talked about illinois iowa and Rutgers who have emerged at this point in the year uh the team you said that you know might have a a pretty high ceiling i think correct me if i'm wrong but i think it was purdue they are in the i just said wisconsin wisconsin okay wisconsin most interesting they're holding firm to that i mean they are intriguing still and they still are going to make some noise i think potters stabilized them but uh, I ruined my own segue because I was going to get into the, the teams that are now sliding Yeah, with Purdue, Michigan, Ohio State. Uh, are you 
do you have any grave concern over any of these teams potentially, you know, playing their way out of the NCAA tournament conversation? I don't think Wisconsin falls into that. They're they've been playing pretty well overall. Those three teams I mentioned that, you know, at one point, especially Michigan and Ohio State, look to be surefire locks. Um, what what are your concerns as we you know play the last week of January out here? Uh, Ohio State certainly isn't playing well right now, but I think they built up such a cushion early on that they'd have to completely, you know, just fall on their face to miss the tournament at this point. Uh, Purdue, I thought, was always kind of teetering. You know, they they missed opportunities early. You know, they had a chance to to beat Texas at home, who we found out isn't that great. Right. Uh, so that would have been a nice, you know, quiet two-ish win that they could have had and didn't get. Uh, they had Florida State on the ropes uh, in a tournament in Florida. Obviously, Florida State's the top five team in the country, according to the AP polls. The game they lost in overtime. That win might get Indiana in the tournament. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So that would have been a nice one for Purdue. Um, you thought that if they could just do enough in Mackey that they can, you know, get enough quiet one and two wins to kind of bolster their tournament resume. And, you know, we saw Michigan State go there and Purdue play their best game of the of the season and completely blow them out of the gym. But they didn't follow that up once Illinois came in. Illinois kind of took it to them. And so even though they have good, you know, metrics right now, and they're only 10 and 9 on the year. Like, that's a team that has – Trouble scoring. Uh, Aaron Wheeler's, you know, has not been able to find his shot. They're a complete mess on the road. Their home and road splits are completely crazy. I think of the teams you mentioned, they're the one that's in the most trouble. Uh, Michigan needs Isaiah Livers back and fast. But even with him coming back, I think the the issues on defense and the issues with turnovers, I don't know if Livers just solves all of that. I mean, Michigan's got the worst defensive efficiency in conference I play, saw that. which is unheard of considering, you know, obviously a completely different staff, but with Yaklich last year, I had them at the yeah, top. Yeah, I mean, they were top 10 nationally right. defensively every, you know, pretty much every year he was there. And the fact that they're the worst, you know, Defensive efficiency team in the Big Ten at conference play is alarming. Is there any word on uh, when they expect um, Livers back? I know he's you know kind of participated in warmups uh, against Penn State. He did so uh, against Iowa as well. But you know with with the groin, it's kind of hard to say. You know, it's, I definitely don't think it's one of those things you want to rush him back. But they clearly need him. Uh, they definitely need his shooting and his floor spacing because I don't know if Xavier Simpson taking twenty three shots is the answer. All right, so before we wrap up, uh, big game tonight between Indiana and Michigan State. You know, Michigan State got swept last year by Indiana. This is going to date us because this is going to come out uh, Friday at the earliest. But it's interesting with our, uh, you know, our schools potentially heading toward a showdown second week of February. You know, it might be a one versus two situation, might be a tied for Big Ten lead situation at that point. How do you see? Uh, how do you see Michigan State kind of holding serve at the top? You think they'll drop a few? Uh, the rest of the way, I feel like a lot of people have been predicting the Big Ten champ having five, six, maybe even seven losses. Yeah, I, w- I would be really surprised if the champ had less than five. Um, I think that, you know, this week is kind of a big week, and Tom Izzo kind of commented on that in terms of a separation type of week. You know, Michigan State's got two road games, you know, Indiana and Minnesota both this week. Um, you know, the fact that you know, they've only played two road games thus far, you know, of their seven. Kind of goes to show that, you know, and one of those road games being Northwestern. You know, they, they had a top-heavy home schedule, and I think that allowed them to get off to a good start, and everybody felt really great about them. 
the Purdue game happened. They haven't been on the road since. I I'd say they split these two games this week, uh, which means you know Illinois, if they take care of business in Ann Arbor, they could be in first place by the time we talk next week. All right, looking forward to it. Let's uh, wrap it up there. You know, we gave our new toys a uh, you know, quick test drive. So far, so good. And we'll see you back in the saddle next week, my friend. Sounds good, man. All right. All right. Thanks one more time to Harold and Paul for joining the show. Really a good variety of topics today. Obviously, touching on a, a new sport for us on the Take 10 Podcast. Learn some some uh, ins and outs of lacrosse and what it takes to launch a new league. Obviously, very complex, but uh, Paul seems up to the task, so... Good luck to him, and we'll continue our, our rhythm of getting Harold on pretty much weekly here on the show to catch up with Big Ten basketball. Exciting stuff ahead. We will get uh, continue to get a good variety of guests on, so we hope you continue to listen. Till then, we will talk to you next time. Actually, before I sign off, can't forget to thank Julie Bronder and Wes White for helping produce the show. Um, always got to show, uh, show them love for for producing the show especially on days like today when i am getting it in at the very last second and they're trying to go home so shout out to them and once again thank you to everyone for listening we'll talk to you soon here on take 10 podcast